Welcome to Changing Reels, a podcast that aims to change the conversation on diversity and representation in cinema one reel at a time. My name is Courtney Small. I write about film for several publications, including Cinema Access, That Shelf, to name a few. I'm also co-host of the podcast Frameline. Today I have the pleasure of being joined by film critic Paolo Kagawan. Paolo is a prolific writer whose work can be frequently found at intheseats.ca. He's also been published in the National Post and contributed to various sites, including the Film Experience. Paolo, how are you doing today? I actually have like a lot of energy for somebody who's been awake for 12 hours. How are you? Well, you know what? That energy, I think, will fit perfectly with the film that we're <laughs> going to discuss today. I'm doing very well. And I'll tell you, you know, it's it's been a, a rough week because we got some news about particular family members who's dealing with some stuff and it had me down and then I watched the film that we are going to be talking about and I kind of was put back in a in a happy place. Our main film today is the 2015 film Tangerine directed by Sean Baker. Taking place on Christmas Eve in Hollywood, the film follows Cinderella, a prostitute who happens to be transgendered and recently released from jail as she reunites with her good friend Alexandra, a fellow prostitute, and also goes on this epic search for her boyfriend friend slash pimp Chester who is rumored to have cheated on her while she was locked away for 28 days. Paulo, what were your thoughts on Tangerine? It is uniformly excellent. It's very energetic and there are technically two main characters but I guess there are two supporting characters um, jump into the film equally. Sean Baker is like very good at trying to like modulate like the energy levels of each character and you know like capturing them either through sight and sound. There's so many aspects of this film that we can't talk about. For me personally, I think this conversation is going to be really interesting if we tend to focus a little more on the characters in the story. Like, I know this is one of those films that has got a lot of acclaim because of its technical aspects. You know, it was shot on a couple of iPhone 5s, but I feel like that's been beaten to death. I'm actually more interested in the characters, the story, the use of transgendered actors and how that relates into the greater pop culture scheme and i'll just say for myself i i love this film i've seen it countless times there's a certain unique energy to it that i find just fascinating and one of my favorite moments is actually i would say the brief moment of calm it's when cinderella is trying to hunt down chester and she stops to have a smoke and she's sitting on the bus bench and you hear a bit of classical music a bus comes by with poster i I think it says something like they'll never let you go for whatever show or film it's advertised and you get for a brief moment well maybe she's contemplating stopping going a different direction and then she says f it hip-hop music comes back in and we're back on the prowl from there it's just at 180 for the entire time so how about we we talk about cinderella because she's is kind of like the catalyst for a lot of the the craziness that happens and then we can move to her, her good friend alexandra after so what were your initial thoughts on cinderella and what do you think that she does in terms of enhancing the film because as you said the film is perfection oh yeah it's 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 near perfect the thing is that we can't necessarily or at least in my perspective we can't necessarily like separate cinderella and alexandra just because they're two opposite sides of a coin Cindy fits more into what us cisgender people like consider like trans women's basically you know lights up the room while like Alexandra's like the calm the calm one 
And I guess I, I didn't think too much of it. The second and third time that I saw it, I actually kind of was looking into how Kitana Kiki Rodriguez, how she fleshes out this character. Yeah, there, there's so many things she does. Like she does a lot of like sing-songy delivery. She's very quick. Yeah, she, yeah, she's kind of the person that you don't want to be in the bad side of. Yes, I, I agree with that. Yeah, and they're like basically, it's like she, she has to do a lot more, and she accomplishes every challenges that Sean Baker gives her unless of course this is based on a true story and she's reenacting what she actually did from what I've read in just the interviews that I've, I've watched as well Sean Baker and I think it was Chris Bergotch they were the the two I guess that loosely came up with the the premise because Sean Baker I guess had recently moved to LA and was kind of fascinated by that whole Santa Monica and Highland Strip which I guess a lot of transgender prostitutes hang out at yeah. and he if I remember correctly he actually went to an LGBTQ center that helps provide aid and what have you. And that's where he met Maya Taylor. And that's, I think, when they he told her about this idea and they started working together and they started collaborating. And then he met Tana Kiki Rodriguez through her. And if I if I got the story correct, it was actually Katana Kiki Rodriguez who came up with the notion of the woman being scorned. And then that's mm-hmm. what the, the premise kind of snowballed off of. What I like about the character of Cinderella is... As, as you said, she she is that one that you don't want to be on the wrong side of. But through all the craziness in the film and the the hyper energy she has at this one specific goal, she's still a, a fairly loyal friend. And I'm thinking back yeah. to when she finally captures the other woman, Dinah, and she's going to take her to, to have this sit down with Chester. And then she realizes, oh, wait, it's seven o'clock. Yeah. My girl Alexandra is performing. We gotta go, right? And then you got this whole thing of she's essentially taking her hostage to now witness this performance. You know, every time you think she's gonna be a bad friend, she then turns around and still shows that no, this is my girl. I will do whatever, even though she's she can be a little scattered at times. We started this conversation with like that quiet moment, which actually to me it didn't feel. Um, I felt very like thunderous. So mm-hmm. the quiet moment for me was when they're in the bathroom for the second time, like smoking meth and like smoking which by the way before before I talk about that it's like I love how they smoke meth for the second time after Alexander's performing I have never smoked meth okay like, I can't believe I'm talking about this here I have hi dad I have never smoked meth but like I know people like been around that but at the same time it's just like if I was a meth addict but like my best friend is performing a set like I would wait until the set is done I would go smoke meth again anyway the quiet moment was basically like her and Dinah smoke meth for the second time and she actually like does Dinah's makeup a little bit Cindy brushes Dinah's hair with like her own hands like it's she feels like a camaraderie with this person that she's supposed to dislike and I guess it's you know there's the resentment of the fact that like she's a trans woman and like Chester cheats on her with a cisgender white woman the gender and racial dynamics of that will like pop up but at the same time like you know it's like she still kind of feels like stirred with this person who's not supposed to be her sister you make a very good point there especially with the the mess smoking because I was kind of taken by that second time as well the way I took it was at the end of the day they're both sec- sex workers they they share a certain bond in terms of understanding that world and how at the end of the day guys like Chester are gonna always let you down but the girls have to stick together exactly 
it's a great moment and i also found it kind of funny too because it comes after alexander sings that song which although it's performed very well it's a very old sounding song it wasn't the type of song that i was expecting her to to perform and when they go to smoke meth the second time was almost i almost got the impression it was like we can't sit through another old rendition <laughs> we need we need something to kind of liven it up but there's just those little interesting moments and i find when the three of them are together that also adds a very unique dynamic because when they're on the way to donut time and they're sitting on the bus diana starts talking to them and just quote-unquote being honest in her opinion as if she's been one of the girls all along and he starts saying well hey at least you got paid for for singing and then you find out well actually no she didn't get paid for it and you know every time she she tries to be somewhat positive she ends up exposing something about alexandra that really shouldn't have been exposed and it's, it's just a very interesting dynamic with those three as the film progresses. Yeah, like, I'm still trying to figure out why didn't Cindy just lie? It's like, yeah, like, she totally got paid that quality. I don't know whether or not it's just intrinsically of Cindy's character trait or every single person in this, like, universe. Nobody is capable of lying. <laughs> well, I think they're capable of lying. I think Alexandra is capable of leaving key details out. Oh, yes. She's the only one that seems to be level-headed enough to, to understand who Chester really is you know you find out that her and Chester had a thing a, a one time yeah. encounter that she's just not going to speak and she keeps silent about that where everyone is just coming in and spilling the beans off of everything and I think that also adds to to the humor because even Chester himself is I think probably the worst of all of them when it comes to lying like you, you see the wheel slowly turning when he finally enters the picture and he, he claims that he's going to take Cinderella to Roscoe's for Christmas dinner and you could tell that he just pulled that out of the out of the blue just trying anything to save himself and he just keeps digging himself into a a bigger hole and then speaking of roscoe if you could just take a diversion there are a lot of like the businesses those la landmarks although i'm not sure if it, this roscoe's is the same as roscoe's in chicago that's also a drag bar but yeah like donut time is apparently a big hangout for either drag queens and trans women and uh they call trade apparently like that's not even around anymore and mary's where alexander Perform. I am not necessarily sure if that's the same thing as Hamburger Mary's. Like, it looks cleaner than what I think Hamburger Mary's looks like. But yeah, like, it's a very interesting snapshot of Hollywood during that time, even though when I went to Hollywood, I did not see any trans women who were working. And it also offers, like, a completely different perspective to the, the Hollywood that you get in Tarantino's film. And I understand his takes, it's a period piece back in the 60s and stuff, but even then, it's still, like, a, a romanticized version of, of Hollywood, where here everything is kind of saturated you you feel like everyone is kind of on the outskirts of the glitz and glamour you have the yeah. you have someone like Razmik who is the Armenian cabbie trying to make a living even though again he's another one who is fooling around without his wife knowing the the people that we meet are the forgotten hollywood the the side of hollywood that people choose not to talk about but exist in in plain sight the thing about erasmic dudes like when i when i first heard about tangerine like, i thought it was about, like about two trans women being chased by some dude so whenever the story would switch to erasmic he did not give me a good vibe until like he and alexandra finally meet and then oh like he's a customer like he's a friend to these women in more ways than one a part of this premise is basically that these sex sex workers like customers are also 
part of the community. I know enough trans women, but like I don't know any like trans women sex workers, and I don't necessarily know whether or not they do consider their customers part of the community or if they have feelings for some of their customers. But at the same time, not all trans women think the same. Some people might think that their customers are part of the community, and some of them might not. I'll say the one quibble I had, and it's tough to complain about it because I, I know it's so integral to the story. But the first time I saw this film, I was I was thinking, oh, are we going to see another film with trans women being portrayed as sex workers? Yeah. And I will give Baker and Cass credit that you use the word community, and I think it kind of works for this film because essentially all the trans women that we see in this film are sex workers. And there yeah. is a communal aspect to how they interact with each other. The ones who like each other, there's some cattiness amongst some of them. And it, it works for this film. I kind of forgot their profession as the film went on. I was so caught up in just the bond between Cinderella and Alexandra. And, you know, it's really a tale about this great friendship between these two women and the men that kind of come in and out of their lives. But their bond is still together. So I do like that aspect of it. But I also kind of wish, hopefully moving forward, we kind of get away from from that particular trope? Two things about that. First, there's a whole community of uh, trans sex workers who are in this movie. Of course, uh, Cinderella is the only person who shows up to her show. And that's also because it's like, uh, if you remember Paris is Burning, like which, by the way, would make a great companion piece or make a um, great feature episode. It's um, Oh, yeah, we, dis- we discussed it on an earlier episode, but it does make a great companion piece for this film. One of the ladies in Paris is Burning, it's, yeah, like, the reason why this ball is burning is so late is because some of, the, um, some of the women are still working. And I guess it's it's the same thing here where not a lot of people show up in Alexandra's show because, like, everybody's working and it's Christmas. And don't ask me how I know this, but Christmas is a downtime for sex workers regardless of their assigned birth or sexual orientation. Oh, the second thing, Maya Taylor has like made a career now as an actress, and she's going to be in like a Jackie Weaver movie soon. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, like, I looked up her resume, and it's basically her playing sex worker after sex worker after sex worker, and then Tanakiki Rodriguez doesn't have any credits after this. Even watching this, keep imagining roles for them that are other than sex workers. I mean, obviously being a sex worker is fine. You know, they could play other roles, but they're not going to get those roles because Hollywood is lazy when it comes to casting and depicting trans women. And I completely agree with that. And again, you know, this is not a non- on the sex worker profession at all it's just you need to see diversity in terms of show them living normal lives and stuff i I find that television has kind of taken that step where you're seeing a lot more um, transgendered actors playing various roles and being being allowed to be various types of people on television but i find cinema is still lagging behind there's gonna be like a role for like a trans woman who is not a sex worker like it's gonna go to laverne cox who she's played a firefighter and like a, a tattoo artist the the sad thing about people in marginalized communities in hollywood is like there there can only be one but there should be room for more than one trans woman of color to play whatever role they want and there's also the problem with there can only be one is that when Hollywood decides we're going to tell various stories, they usually get Eddie Redmayne or Scarlett Johansson, popular cisgendered, I would say 90% of the time, white actor, actress, and then they're allowed to play the role because they are actors. They, you know, they can assume any role and you go, well, that's funny because there's tons of great transgendered actors that could easily play these roles. Like, it doesn't seem to work the other way now. And when you bring it up in the conversation people go oh well it wouldn't sell how are you going to attract people it's like so by getting scarlett johansson to to play a transgender person that all of a sudden warrants that it's going to be a box office hit like i disagree with that this film tangerine was made for 100k and you know indie film small release and i think it made 925k 
in its short run, which, it, you know, by Hollywood standards, that's a huge hit for, for a small film shot on an iPhone, right? So there's a market. As long as the story is good and you have actors that fit the role, you can do it. I totally understand it, like, in the actor's perspective, where just everybody, regardless of race and sexual orientation, like, gets typecast and, like, some of them want to break out. But the only people who get to break out of their modes are, you know, like, cisgender white actors. My tailor deserves to play different kinds of people with different kinds of professions. Yeah, and she brings so much to this film as well. I mean, I think it's in many ways it's harder to play straight man to the the wild zany one. You know, Cinderella kind of gets to have those big moments, those big scenes. She can kick down the door to a, a hotel brothel and cause a whole bunch of, of ruckus, create some great comedic lines, and then leave. Whereas Alexandra the whole time has to be the grounding force. So, like, when she's, you know, when the John tries to stiff her out of her $40, you've still got to, you, you still feel for her because she's... She's just trying to make her money. And then at the same time, you know, yeah. she's going to have to whoop this guy's butt. But she also has to be calm enough to deal with the police officers who clearly know who she is. Like, you know, there's a lot of different layers that she has to play. And she and I think she does it really well. The scene actually just kills me just because it, it plays along with this theme. These people act before they think the John like, sees the cop car and it's like, officer, this person is assaulting me. And, you know, but the thing is that the officers know Alexandra, who they dead name. And the cops kind of show the light transphobia that the other characters inflict on both Alexandra and Cindy. That's a very good point. The first time I saw this film, I didn't catch the dead naming. Yeah. In sub subsequent times, it, it stood out a lot more. Cops don't only say to each other in the car, but they even say to her face at first, you know, and it's it's one of those moments where you go, huh, and the way how they let the John off, you know, you don't want us to have to call your family. Let's just call it a day. Let's just say it's even. It's like, well, actually, no, it's not even. He's still negated on a business transaction. It's one thing if you don't take him to jail but you saying all right it's all done with don't worry about it again you're still marginalizing alexander even further i don't necessarily know the text read but the fact that alexander doesn't have like set prices and this guy has the audacity to cruise without having enough money to pay for somebody is telling on how dire everybody's situation is at this point part of me wonders if that's a more common occurrence where you have the johns who think that because they're dealing with a sex worker, they're going to try and, and swindle them regardless. If he had been satisfied, would he still have paid that uh, $40 or would he have found an excuse to, to take it back or what have you? And I'll say this. One of the things that surprised me about this film, and I, I guess up until like the very end, there wasn't any real violence towards the women. Um, you, yeah. you you have, like, even that incident we're talking about with the John, I think I would say Alexandra doing more of the butt kicking. You know, you do get that one moment towards the very end where the frat boys throw urine on Cinderella but outside of that was handled better than a lot of other films I see where some directors can be a little gratuitous in terms of showing the abuse towards transgendered women there were so many things that happened that I totally forgot it's still like a dangerous time to be a trans woman in North America Maybe we're like we're jumping ahead towards the ending, but said in the beginning, it's how Cindy and Alexandra are like on the opposite sides of the coin, and even there, there's even some symbolism to it. There's always like the blonde versus brunette sort of duality. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, in some movies, the blonde symbolizes purity, while the brunette's like the vamp. This movie kind of like perpetuates that stereotype. In this movie, the blonde is sort of this flighty, again larger than life personality, where the brunette is calmer. When the frat boy scene happens, Alexandra gives Cindy her hair, makes her look more mature. There's like this hope that Cindy's going to be mature after this situation. Good point. Like I had not even thought of that while watching it. Now, and as you're talking, I'm thinking back to how 
Cindy is in terms of you're saying the flightiness and even Dinah yeah. how how she is. Yeah, even some of the darker haired women that you meet throughout the film, they all seem a little more level headed and even keeled, even in their, their brief interactions with, with high strung Cinderella. That's a very interesting point. Now I now I wanna rewatch the film again just to, to pick on that. And speaking of sort of like these binaries and stereotypes, there's like the stereotype about Latinx people being crazy and there's like this other stereotype, like the, the nurturing side of black womanhood that Alexandra may or may not be representing. I again I don't know how intentional or subconscious the filmmakers were when presenting these character traits or whether or not like being stereotypical about it or not. Rasmus, his mother-in-law had dark hair and she was she's the one that kind of sees the bigger picture or realizes that there's something not right with her son-in-law going out on Christmas Eve to quote-unquote work. It sets up a really interesting dynamic when everyone converges at donut time and I still find myself laughing a lot at that whole donut time interaction and even the the stuff with with Mama-san who I guess is actually played by one of the the producers of the film. I didn't know that. Yeah, it, so it's, I, I don't know, I find that whole chaotic scene funny. It's all orchestrated, but yeah, like, multiple rewatches kind of just, like, made me see some of the holes in it. When when both the Armenian women show up, there's, like, the actual guitar music, because they're foreigners. The musical cues are a little obvious. Uh, there's also, Razmik's wife actually has her own perspective, you know, he provides for the family, so it doesn't necessarily matter whether or not he cheats on her with, like, trans women. I think it's Ann Landers who said that, does he beat you? No. Is he a provider? Yes. Then, like, don't leave him. Even though nobody really knows how that marriage is going to go. Yeah, she. I, I found that she, out of all of the characters, was in denial the most. And, yeah, he is the, the provider, and I think she was more upset with her mom kind of getting in her business and and exposing this type of stuff but i i feel there's also a certain level of embarrassment like i felt like at at donut time rasmic's wife was trying to put on a a brave face but there's a few times where she interacts with rasmic himself and you can kind of tell like you you went too far you know Mm. not only did you cheat on me which is bad and i was going to overlook but you made it a public spectacle. This movie also sort of brings up tension between like cis men and trans women. Like I'm sure that yeah, trans women are okay with cis women or and vice versa. But yeah, there's a mirror between how Cindy is resentful of Chester cheating on her with Dinah, and then there's like, Rasmik's wife probably is resentful of the fact that like how Rasmik cheats on her with uh, trans women. The cis-trans divide is basically on this lens as like, what does this person have that I don't have? And it's a hard conversation to articulate at this point. Trans people have existed for a long time, but, you know, it's like we're only sort of have a real conversation with now and we're still in sort of like murky waters, especially when infidelity is involved. That's why I kind of like that we have films like this, because it forces us to have the conversation. Your point is actually very interesting and and valid because Dinah realized who Cindy is talking about who's this guy that she's all upset over her first instinct is yeah Chester would never fall for you you know he might have fooled around or whatnot but he wouldn't fall for you you know I'm all woman he he wants me and then when she finds out that Chester has claimed that he's gonna marry Cindy she starts to use derogatory terms towards him almost tries to I guess quote unquote demasculate him you know he's he's no longer that kind of fearsome pimp he's you're a gay man now and I found that kind of interesting in terms of the dynamics and it does fit to what you were saying about that that tension speaking of sort of the shock that cis women have whenever a cis man is attracted to or has an attraction towards trans women 
there's a scene with like the new girl on the block. Oh yes. It, it's like the reverse of what's that movie with a uh, Forrest Whitaker in it? Oh, uh, Crying Game. It's the, the reverse Crying Game where he's like surprised and disappointed that this woman that is in his car has a vagina, as opposed to like what like the parts that like he wants to play around with. It's it's amusing, but it's also a good reveal in terms of I feel like at that moment you you really see the the true Rasmic. He gets really offended that he's picked up a, a cisgender woman and he violently takes his money back as if as if she has lied to him even though it was him who went after her. You you realize that Rasmic's just like every other John interesting world this film creates but we only get so much time to kind of step in it i think there's a version of this movie that might be more depressing where like it would have depicted alexandra's time when cindy was in jail but again would have been more depressing like like, having both cindy and alexandra in this movie it adds like levity and complexity to like this whole thing you know even people with like the most unfortunate circumstances have misadventures and have levity in their lives yeah that's right and they can still make the best out of a what we consider a bad situation or circumstance it's not all doom and gloom every single day and that's that's one great thing about this film there's a lot of levity there's a lot of of great lines quotable lines it's in this film thing about being lgbt is like real iconic just by being ourselves even alexander saying marys that's seven marys seven marys seven had this come out in the gay 90s rupaul would be quoting it on rupaul's drag race yeah like paris is burning even gays nowadays or like lgbt people nowadays are quoting the queen and their quote paris is burning where it's just like i don't necessarily see like people in our community like quoting this it's I feel like the audience that found this movie are more straight, like, woke cinephiles. Yeah, I I could see that. But it's also relatively, it's still relatively new. Sometimes it takes a while for for trends to start. Like, it's only been, what, five years that since this came out. So sometimes it takes a while for certain stuff to get into the culture. But I feel like this film, as great as it is, I still think because it's an indie film, it's still going to take a while to really connect to the masses. Because, yeah, cinephiles have really taken to it, but... I feel like something like the Florida Project, which got Oscar love, will draw more people to, to Sean Baker's film than this one in particular. Like, I feel like this one is, when it hits a streaming service or something, you're going to start to see more, or when it goes back on streaming service, I should say, you'll start to see more people kind of pick it up and get themselves attached to it. I think it's available on, like, both YouTube and Google Play for, like, six bucks or something. So, yeah, there's, that's one way to get this movie there, yeah there's me hoping that like i don't know like netflix or amazon prime or the criterion collection like this is something that the criterion it, it would be a good i agree with that yeah definitely this would make a great criterion film because there's there's a technology aspect which we've kind of purposely ignored um and then there's the stuff that we've been talking about and i think all of that would make for a really interesting criterion release yeah and it's a it's a great looking film like i know we haven't purposely avoided the the text stuff but just visually i i find just the way how it frames los angeles and the kind of yellowish hue that it has and perpetual setting sun vibe for a lot of it i think works as well i don't know it's 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 a great film and i i hope more people see it and I hope this film will help to, I guess, be a catalyst for more feature films starring transgendered actors. 
Paulo, thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come on the show. I told you this to your your face during TIFF, but I, I honestly do feel like you're one of the hardest working film critics in the city. I honestly don't know how you churn out the amount of reviews and fit in the time for all the films, but I greatly appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Where can listeners find you? Where, where can they find you on social media? You can find me on uh, twitter.com slash Paulo case. Uh, I'm very profane there. I can't, actually, no, yeah, like I also do like bullet reviews there. Facebook Instagram where you can um, find either my reviews or like my hot body uh, what else yeah Tumblr reviews slash like hot bodies of other men Letterboxd where um, my effort is either a lot or not at all and of course permanenthomesindeceits.ca where you can um, find out what I think of random stuff festivals Oscar Oscar bait Oscar stuff and yes yeah like I don't know how I do it I am tired all the time I, I can understand that and I, I'll say keep up the, the good work but at least take a break once a week you know try and get a couple of hours of sleep listeners you can find me on twitter at small mind or you can contact the show on twitter at changing reels ac and remember you can change the conversation on diversity and representation in cinema one reel at a time